It's sucking my will to live. Welcome to another episode of the Fishmongers. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking a little bit about how each of us became ichthyologists. So we all study fish in various ways. So we're going to be going into that a little bit. And we're also going to be going into a bunch of other random things, including a follow-up from previous episode. So uh, first, let's introduce our cast here, our co-host. So we have Leo Smith. Hola, I'm Leo. We have Kevin Tang. Howdy. That's it. Hi. <laughs> that was weak, what? man. <laughs> that was weak. <laughs> well, you, you already said my name, and you're like, introduce me. Howdy, I'm Kevin. There you Tang. go. Howdy. Beautiful. <laughs> I already said howdy. That's what I said the first time. <laughs> and this is Matt Davis. And we are the Fishmongers. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about how we got into fishes. So let's start with Leo Smith and how he got introduced into being an ichthyologist. Well, maybe we should start with some follow-up from last week's episode. So uh, so we did get a couple questions, uh, either by email or over Twitter. Um, and again, if you ever have any questions, we'll repeat this at the end of the show, but you can reach us on Twitter at underscore the fishmongers, uh, or you can uh, email or text any of us. Uh, or tweet at us. Um, and so the first question was a, a couple different people actually asked about when I was bringing up the Sharknado uh, light track, which is like a visual soundtrack. And so this actually came out first with Sharknado 2. Um, and so it was the very first time that a TV show could control the lighting in your room. And uh, so what Sci-Fi did was work together with Philips, who makes these Hue light systems. And so if you start the movie and the turn on the app kind of at the exact same time when the different things are happening in the movie like so the entire movie is like sort of choreographed with the lighting such that they'll dim or brighten or change color depending on what's happening on screen so like the most obvious one is like when something really bad happens and all the sharks are killing everyone the, your whole like living room if you have a, all, a bunch of lights like I do turns bright red and things like that so it's actually kind of fun I mean it's like a little gimmicky it's definitely it's more than a little gimmicky it's totally gimmicky um, but it's you know I'm totally it's really awesome. fun yeah, simultaneously totally awesome. Yeah. Um, so, and you can kind of mimic this in other things, but it's a little slow. So for them to actually do this, and it must have been a pain to do it. So I kind of appreciate that. And then the other question we got from a few different people, or at least one person, uh, questioned whether a kid actually died in Jaws. Um, and so even though I was the one that most recently watched it, I didn't know how to respond to the person. And... Uh, checked in with my other co-hosts who are both more experts on this, and so I'll let them respond to whether a kid died in Jaws or not. Oh, the answer is yes. I don't know if we're experts, more we just Googled it, and apparently there's a Jaws Wikipedia, like a whole Wikipedia devoted to to Jaws, and the, yes, um, his name is Alex, the character's name is Alex Kintner, I guess, and the actor is, I can't remember, I think it's Jeffrey Voorhees. He's got the same last name as the Jason character from Friday the 13th. But the actor, I guess, is in his like 50s now and uh, still lives on Martha's Vineyard where this is all, you know, uh, on the Internet, um, still uh, lives on Martha's Vineyard where the movie was shot. He apparently runs is uh, like a manager for a restaurant there that has like a burger named after that character. And he says fans um, from all over still come in regularly, uh, you know, to see where the movie was filmed and they recognize him and they and they talk to him about that. 
Cool. Yeah, there's definitely a kid that gets killed. I mean, that's a huge plot point in the books and the movie Jaws. So, cool. So, as Matt said today, we thought we'd uh, talk about how all of us became an ichthyologist. Um, and I thought maybe we'd start by talking about what an ichthyologist is, right? So, um, we all are very specific kind of ichthyologist, which is someone that studies sort of the evolution of fishes and how fishes are related and maybe different aspects of character evolution or other things associated with that. But there's a lot of different kinds of ichthyologists. Um, you can, you know, even straight in academia, you could study the ecology. So like how fishes, you know, what they eat, what they, where they live, the kinds of questions like that, all the way through how they swim. Um, what other things do you guys think qualify as an ichthyologist? Would you say that someone who works at like a public aquarium would qualify as an ichthyologist? Sure, like a fish husbandrist. Yeah, like an aquarist. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Do you have to have a get paid to be an ichthyologist? That's your profession, other than retirement. Oh, in this regard, I that. think there's probably a slight difference between like a paid ichthyologist and like a hobbyist. So probably, but but yeah. Um, I was just going to ask. So, does an ichthyologist have to be somebody who does research on fish, or just works with fish? I think you don't have to. Maybe you don't have to. I don't think you necessarily have to do research on them. But it is a it is a valid question. Well, I, I would say like fish husbandry requires quite a bit of knowledge about fish and like fish care. So like on some <laughs> level, those people are doing some aspect of research on how to maintain and take care of fish. So, right, and there's a difference between like doing research and like publishing research, right? That yeah. gets into mm -hmm. those things. Right. Um, but I kind of, maybe Kevin's onto something. There's definitely like a fine line. There's some gray area in there, but like I definitely think some aspect of getting paid, some aspect of publishing or sharing your knowledge somehow, right? So I think some aspect of being a professional, you know, is part of the whole thing. I mean, that's kind of what separates one from being an amateur, right? So like mm -hmm. I like to draw, but I'm not an artiste or something, so... I have fixed a sink and I'm not a plumber. So maybe we should start by talking about how each one of us got into this. Because I have to be perfectly honest, I don't actually know, the, despite knowing you guys for whatever, I don't know, 10, 20, 15 years now, I don't actually know this, the origin, sort of the origin story, you know, coming off of how we all became this kind of thing. So, like, it sounds very superhero. It. Yeah, I like, but, you know, that plays off of our, you know, our you know, forays into entertainment and things like that. So what's your story, Matt? I kind of became an ichthyologist by, I don't want to say totally by chance, but a little bit by happenstance. Like I was actually more predominantly interested in evolutionary biology and um, I was actually kind of more interested in herpetology at the start. Uh, and when so I was an undergrad, what's that? Okay, undergrad. I was like wondering what age this was. Yeah, like undergrad. I mean, I would say my earlier biological interests were more paleontological, um, probably not dissimilar to a lot of people. Um, but by the time I was an undergrad, I knew I wanted to go into biology, but I wasn't exactly sure what the mechanism for that was. Like, I was not very cognizant of what graduate school was when I was an undergrad. Like, I did not 
have a full understanding of that whole path. Um, and I was predominantly interested in paleo slash herpetology, so like lizards, snakes, other things. Um, that was predominantly what I kept as pets. I didn't really keep a whole lot of fish. Uh, and I was, you know, kind of interested generally in undergraduate research opportunities. And it just so happened that when I was an undergrad, you know, people that were doing undergrad research at the institution I was at um, were working on fish. So that's kind of where I started out. Um, and, you know, for the most part, that's how it kind of got started. It's like, it's not that I had any great passion for fish as like a young age per se, but I had this like real interest in evolutionary biology. And particularly I was like actually really interested in systematics, which is a weird thing for an undergrad to be interested in. But the truth is like, that's, I was really interested in how different things were related to one another. Um, and I got interested in fish as I worked on fish groups as an undergrad. That's kind of where the interest started to kind of blossom. And partially because I was really interested in lizards and other things, I got really interested in like deep sea fish, right? Like things that had this kind of convergent morphology where they had these like large teeth, kind of scary looking fishes. Um, and superficially, that was what initially drew me to deep sea fish. Um, and I kind of started working on them from there. And like, that's kind of where the passion started. Um, and, you know, I love fish now, but like really the, I was kind of driven there by kind of some of the convergent evolution that they have um, because of the habitat there. And it kind of makes them look scary. And, you know, that's, the truth is that is what kind of like drew me there. It was like these large teeth, kind of this like scary appearance. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what got me. It kind of sounds a little weird, but like that's, that is what drew me there. So when you tell us you spent years trying to figure out what you want to do for your dissertation and then that you ended up on lizard fish, we're supposed to believe uh -huh. that it took a long time to get there. <laughs> it, it didn't take a whole, not frog it didn't really take a whole long time. I mean, like I would say in my first semester of graduate school, I was trying to figure out what kind of fishes group, like fish groups I wanted to work on for my PhD. And I remember going through like various books and particularly like Nelson, like fishes of the world and just like flipping through and like seeing pictures of lancet fishes, um, kind of like, you know, they're not totally obscure fish, but they are kind of obscure fish for the general person. Um, and just being like, wow, what is that? You know, like it's a group of fish. Like I didn't know a whole lot about, like, I think generally speaking, a lot of people don't know a whole lot about them, even ichthyologists and, um, wanting to know more about those groups of fish. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like I kind of landed on them pretty fast, but that doesn't mean I was like an expert in them quickly. It was just like yeah. my interest was peaked in them pretty early on. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with superficially initially their appearance. But now I've kind of come to realize that, you know, my initial draw to that is really just a response to like convergent evolution in a particular type of habitat. Um, and I'm kind of just was attracted to this particular type of phenotype, which, you know, you know, it was probably not that weird, but like the truth is I was attracted to this kind of like scary looking fish with large teeth that I now realize is like this kind of large deep sea fish, particular ones that are in pelagic habitats, these things that catch prey items. Um, and a lot of the groups I've worked on since tend to be in that same area, um, almost have just convergence, but it's all like evolutionary convergence. So you like, like things that look like they'd be good video game monsters. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always been really attracted to, like, monsters. I mean, it sounds kind of goofy, but, like, it's true. I mean, I've always really liked 
scary looking animals, scary looking monsters. Like that's always been something I'm interested in, whether it's movies or video games or books or anything. Like I'm always kind of attracted to monsters of some consequence. Uh, and you know, what are deep sea fishes if they are not like monsters of the deep, I guess, for a variety of different organisms. They're not as big as people necessarily imagine, but, um, you know, compared to a shrimp, they're pretty good size. Yeah. Yeah, they're monsters, but they're teeny, teeny, tiny. <laughs> yeah. That's always the, like, disappointing part, right? Like, when you're showing them off to little kids, and they're like, how big is this anglerfish? And you're like, yeah, it's, like, smaller than my thumb. <laughs> smaller <laughs> than a human heart. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, smaller eh. than you think it is, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can I interrupt with a random story? I, When you guys had that exhibit at the Field Museum years ago, and I came to visit, I still remember one of the funniest things was you're going through, and the the letdown when you got to the display and it's like, it's the colossal destroyer squid. And then you look at the actual thing and it's in a, it's an eight ounce jar and you're just looking at it going, huh? I think you over, it's like the name oversells this a little bit. It destroyed a lot of tiny little lantern fish. I mean, like, (laughs) I don't know if that's more disappointing or like the actual, because the American museum had made a model of a, of an a deep sea angler fish that they chose that they chose because it was bioluminescent in both inside of its mouth and coming off of its chin. And the only specimen we had at the field museum was literally smaller than a ping pong ball. <laughs> You're just like, wow. Cause the model is like, I don't remember bigger than a football helmet, you know, and then you get over to the specimen in the jar and you're like, tick, 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 tick. you know, it's like a, it's a little toy. So it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Definitely the size of some of these things is not, you know, immense, but, but the lizard fish and lancer fish, some of them get pretty big. I mean, as far as yes. those go, that's about as big as those things get. Yeah, some of those groups get pretty good size. So, so why don't you like sharks more then? I do like sharks. I mean, like, Seems you know, natural. I think what I think with sharks, there is a um, a similarity of appearance that you know, there's something about various groups of deep sea raffin fish where they have evolved into all these different kinds of shapes and sizes that I find really appealing. And the truth is like, as far as just straight up sharks go, like I think their general body plan is pretty much conservative. Um, and there's something to that where, you know, it just didn't right now. There's a million angry emails and tweets from like the shark people that are just getting ready to send in response to that. Sorry, go on. Have you not seen an angel shark? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm talking about kind of like deep sea pelagic sharks. Like, you know, there, there, there are plenty of different sharks with various different types of phenotypes. I'm not saying that. It's just like, but compared to Rafe and fish, that's not the case, right? Like, you know, just in terms of species richness, Rafe and fish obviously went out in terms of sharks. And like sharks are a very old lineage. They've been around a long time. And there are a lot of like pretty cool fossil sharks. In fact, like a lot of the fossil kind of like extinct sharks I find to be more interesting, um, right? But some aspect of that might be their reconstructions. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, I was just kind of generally attracted to the Rafe and fishes more than I was, say, like Mako sharks or great white sharks or something. There was some like, there's always been something I really liked about pelagic fishes. And as far as pelagic sharks go, they're fairly consistent in phenotype. Makes sense. That's yeah, no, that's true. About 80, 85% of sharks look, have the exact same body. I mean, yeah. a, little longer, I mean, a little longer tail. Maybe this dorsal fin moves a little. But Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the ones... They're easy to key out to order yeah, a family because I mean, it's so structured. 
Yeah, I think a lot of the ones that are more interesting phenotypically, <coughs> honestly, like some of the more benthic ones or inshore ones, um, or some of them that have different feeding morphologies, but the average kind of pelagic shark, other than, say, like a hammerhead, um, they're fairly similar. Yeah. Not, cool. yeah, it's not anything against sharks because I like sharks. It's just that that wasn't what drew me. I was never like a shark person per se. I was kind of drawn to the rafe and fish aspect of that. Um, that said, when I was an undergrad, I didn't necessarily like, it's not like I, I said to myself, like, I want to be a rafe and fish person. That's not <laughs> like something I said, right? So like that distinction wasn't something that dawned on me until much later. And I mean, the reality is now that in my mind, right, like all vertebrates for all intents and purposes are fish, right? Cool. Well, I don't think mine could be much different than yours, my whatever, how I got into this. I mean, I started the earliest, right from when I was a little kid, my dad had fish tanks in the house. And I remember I had a goldfish tank in my room that sole purpose was to feed a lionfish that my dad had in the dining room, right? And so I remember really early on, we would like get ready for dinner and then we would go grab a goldfish out of my room walk it over to the dining room in a net and feed it to the lionfish, right? So sadly, that's like still what I do. <laughs> that's like my research. That's pretty much my research program now. Um, you know, develop. I don't even know how young I was. I mean, like I remember in preschool, like the whole preschool came over to our house to look at my dad's saltwater tanks because it was the 70s and there weren't that many saltwater tanks, especially in my little town. Um, but he kind of got rid of those for a while. Um, and then, you know, and then somewhere around high school for a variety of reasons, I started working with fish again and, you know, we set up a pond in the backyard and it sort of snowballed out throughout high school with fish tanks. And I experimented. I got a pet octopus. I got some pet, a pet frog, some geckos and things like that. But I was like the fish better to the point, you know, when I worked at pet, like a couple different pet stores as a kid, started an aquarium maintenance company, you know, sort of a whole bunch of different things all kind of related to aquaculture or husbandry or whatever you want to uh, be an aquarist I didn't really think there was a job there like the only job I could think of I grew up in a town in Los Alamos New Mexico and everyone had a PhD so that part's like a little different so grad school seemed like the only thing you were supposed to do and so I figured I was supposed to go to undergrad and get into a grad school so I could be a director of a public aquarium because I didn't know what other job there was right like because I was so fixated on you know how to maintain a fish um so by chance, I ended up at the only college in the United States that has a public aquarium. And it was actually by chance because I didn't know that. So I ended up at UC San Diego and didn't really enjoy my first two years of college in terms of biology or fish stuff, but eventually started volunteering at the aquarium. From there, they told me I could volunteer at this thing called the Fish Collection, which I didn't know what that was, but it was basically a natural history museum for just fish um, at the graduate school, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. The people there were really nice. I took a fish, like a graduate level fish class. They took me in as a volunteer and it sort of snowballed. I volunteered at a larval fish lab for National Marine Fisheries. I've volunteered at this big collection of fishes at Scripps. Had like some really great mentors at all those places. I still volunteered at the public aquarium. So I was kind of volunteering maybe 20, 30 hours a week at three different places. Like I could not get enough fish stuff. Um, and then sort of that transitioned my senior year uh, to working on a project with the curator there, a guy named Dick Rosenblatt. And he had me describe a new species of sculpin. And sculpins were pretty close to that original lionfish group. And 
I'd like to think that there was more to my interest in those groups other than proximity to when I started working on them. Like I, I'd like to think there was an actual infatuation that <laughs> I love sculpins or I love lionfish and it wasn't just sort of like first love. Um, but I'm not positive, like, you know, if I kind of look at it. Um, but I do love those groups. I mean, I love sculpins. Sculpins will always be my favorite thing. So I guess it doesn't just all fall back to those original lionfishes. Um, you know, that is, but, and I would like to do anything working on those. They're super interesting. They have, I'm still sort of, you know, in the same way that you're attracted to like feeding and teeth and monstery kinds of things. Like, I think because it comes back to husbandry, like the goal of my childhood was to try and get different fish groups to, to spawn or to breed. And so I'm like still most fascinated by the reproductive stuff and sculpins have a lot of really, really weird stuff. Um, so like you could have males that have intermittent organs um, where they'll, you know, put their, their sperm inside the female, but she'll actually hold the sperm like in stasis waiting for like the perfect uh, place to deposit the eggs. So they'll, sometimes they'll put them in sponges or in, you know, crabs or other different kinds of animals in the ocean. And then she'll release the eggs and sperm together. And when the calcium from the ocean hits that you can have the acrosome reaction, which causes sort of the fertilization event. Um, and so like things like that, like really captivated me when I was an undergrad and I wanted to study that, but n not like go out and like scuba dive or snorkel with things and watch it or anything like that. I, I just wanted to look at how, how we had these transitions, right? So long-term, you know, what I still kind of want to do is look at how many different times, different reproductive things at the end of the day is kind of what I'm interested in, but I'm totally not interested in live birth. <laughs> I don't know why, but like that part, I don't mind this like intermittent, you know, organ, the whole thing that all sort of feels like it will lead to live birth. Um, but live birth itself is not, I'm not interested in that birth part, right? I feel like there's all these constraints or evolutionary, you know, potential like, you know, linchpins of how you actually get your sperm and the egg together, right? If you're a male or get your, get sperm with your egg if you're a female. Um, and there's just so many things. And then the group that, uh, ends up kind of coming together with all these guys. So I spent all my time trying to figure out what all those were related and with hopes of long-term figuring out the evolution of this reproductive stuff. But the you end up with the sea basses and all these things that have all sorts of crazy reproduction stuff. So you can have simultaneous hermaphrodites, um, just like in your group. I mean, it's pretty much, I think there's only three groups of fishes that really have simultaneous, I guess there's some sort of self-fertilization stuff is kind of like that. But you basically just have some of the sea basses, your lizard fishes. Yeah, it's, it's not super common. And then a, maybe there's some evidence to some degree that it, butterfly fishes do it. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I'm still... What about still, Yeah, that's what I was going to say, like, because that's kind of like getting towards, like, self, like a different kind of selfing, right? Like, these guys mm, still produce sperm and eggs and they fertilize. And I, you know, the rivulets, so these, I don't know what exactly... Somehow they're always treated separately. And I don't know if it's okay. because they actually just pop out a, a you know, a 2N egg or if it's, you know what I mean? I don't know if they actually produce sperm and egg... You know, I should know if I care about this stuff. <laughs> um, I don't think they do, though. Or I'm sure they can. You know, they have to be able to do something. Um, but that's another group that could do that. But it's really rare. I mean, all things considered, considering how, you know, it, plus you see it all the time in sharks. Like, you know, once you keep a shark in captivity at a public aquarium for a while, it seems like just like in Jurassic Park, life <laughs> finds a way. You, Kevin, singing the song again. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't so want to get copyright. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's if you make the, it's, you know, it's, uh, so th that kind of stuff. So parthenogenesis where the mom pops out a pup without a, without a dad does happen in a variety of places. 
Um, but more in the sharks. I don't. We don't really see that happening too much in public aquaria. Otherwise, um, some of that might be like external eggs and you know, sort of different things that make it more obvious. So, but anyway, that's how I got into this, and then it just sort of snowballed. Um, and you know, I guess I still didn't know. You know, that all explains how I kind of got into it. But it, in terms of like the evolution systematics part, it was going to my first national meeting with the. Uh, American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetology meeting in Edmonton, uh, Alberta, Canada. And I went to a bunch of different kinds of talks and was just like, fell in love with the systematics talks. I think I just like diversity, you know, coming back from like when I was keeping pets, like diversity was kind of key in that. Like I didn't actually like to develop a relationship with my pet. I kind of wanted to keep it until I lost interest in it. And then I just, you know, <laughs> wasn't so sad when it died and I could replace it with something else. Yeah, so. it was kind of similar. <laughs> diversity. <laughs> I never felt like a strong affinity for any of the pets. And most of the pets I had were like lizards and things, but yeah. Strong empathy there early on, huh, Matt? (laughs) (laughs) I just like diversity. But I was, boy, was I into diversity. I would spend so much money. I spent every dollar I made in in, uh, high school on fish stuff. And CDs to some degree. (laughs) So Dr. Tang... Yes. How My does, origin story. Does, yeah, what is your Kevin origin story? And do you have a supervillain? <laughs> yeah, no, not really. Are you sure? Well, <laughs> uh, I guess, but we're not going to, it's like we're not going to mention this on, on, on a podcast and get <laughs> ourselves into trouble. You're talk about your arch nemeses? Yeah, no, I'm, uh, well, uh, sure, we can. Uh, are you guys going to talk about your arch nemeses? <laughs> Some <laughs> of them not. may be similar. <laughs> no, Leo and I yeah, love exactly. everyone. <laughs> yeah, the Venn diagram there. There might be a lot of overlap. But, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, hearing both of your stories, right, um, yeah, w- despite how long I've known you guys, right, and a lot of the details I, uh, you know, um, wasn't familiar with, I'm definitely more similar to uh, Matt. Um, growing up, I was, like, that kid who was, like, really big into, like, dinosaurs and sharks and elephants and just in in the way that, you know, Leo was talking about it, too, just the diversity, how there's all – in uh, vertebrates, too. Like, in hindsight, I was very fixated on vertebrates, right? I never really had, a, like, a bug phase or anything like that. But – yeah, I was just really into it. And then even at the time, I didn't know it, right? It's like the diversity and then I couldn't, you know, didn't know the, you know, the the jargon or the terms for it, but very much into the the taxonomy, right? You know, those kids, right, who know all the names for the different dinosaurs, you're memorizing these like, you know, 15 syllable like Latin names and stuff. And so I was one of those, right? That's fairly typical for a lot of the people who end up uh, doing what we do. And then much like Matt was saying, right? Yeah, when you're a kid, and, and you too, Leo, right? Like when you're a kid, you're not really sure what it is that you can do with that. Oh, I really love these things, right? They're really cool. They're awesome in all these different ways. But, you know, sort of early on, you know, you realize by watching, you know, nature shows and stuff, it's like, oh, there's this thing called a zoologist. Yeah, maybe I can be that, right? Like a marine biologist or something like that. And so I always kind of knew that, you know, sort of growing up that, oh, this is something. I'd like to do, but in that kind of childlike way where you don't really know what goes into it. You just know that this is a thing I can do that takes the thing I love and then, you know, um, make that into a, make that into a career. And so then I, I went to college and then, you know, much like, uh, what you guys were saying, right. Sort of like, it takes a little while for you to figure out what's going on. You go to college, you're taking your sort of intro bio classes and they're not super interesting. But then when I got into all the ologies, right. So, you know, like, oh, I took, you know, um, you know, ornithology and, uh, memology and then obviously ichthyology too. And I still remember lots of stuff about, 
about, you know, my, those classes, right. And just, you know, all the diversity of things, all the, you know, different kinds of things that they could do and the different shapes and forms that they came in. And obviously when you go through all those classes, right, when you're learning stuff, you realize, oh, wow, like fish, there's a lot more of them, right. There's like as many fish combined as there are the other, like all the other vertebrate groups. But even then, right, I didn't quite know, like I didn't have that, you know, sort of a path where I realized, oh, I'm going to go study fish. It was more, and I was, I think I definitely fall into that category of like what Matt was saying too. I kind of lucked into this, right. And that I didn't really have a plan. And, you know, now as we're on the other side, as professors, we see this a lot, right. You have those students who are just like, oh, I'm not really sure what I want to do. And in, in many ways, right. I was like that. And then like, I'm really lucky in the sense that, you know, I applied for uh, graduate school. And even then, I still wasn't really sure what I wanted to do other than, oh, I want to do something systematics related. But I think I would have been okay if it had been, you know, herpetology or mammalogy or something else. But then I ended up um, uh, going to graduate school at, uh, K at the University of Kansas. And um, my advisor, um, uh, uh, a guy named Ed Wiley, which... Um, Right. We have all these connections. So um, he's my uh, he was my advisor. And um, uh, oddly enough, right, some years later, long before, you know, like, like, um, you know, after I'd left, uh, he was also Matt's advisor, too. And then, you know, many years after that, when he retired, Leo is the one who got hired to replace him. And, you know, Leo is at the University of Kansas now, uh, you know, um, essentially uh, in the job that my uh, major advisor had. And so, right. Um, he's like your stepdad, the, our stepdad. Yeah, exactly. He's a, uh, Leo step -dad is our Leo. academic stepdad. Yeah, <laughs> but that's when it gets right, weird. That's... that's when it gets gross because the guy that Matt like learned to like love ichthyology from was also oh, right. Ed Wiley's student. Exactly. So, oh, so, right. so, uh, yes. so I'm his stepdad yeah, so... and his step granddad or something. <laughs> right, Crazy. and so like part of that right is that. Um, you know, and, and it was great, like, being there, right? Because, again, right, even then, and even though I was applying to graduate school, I was like a lot of those, you know, students who are like, oh, this is just the thing I do, but without really – because I think, Leo, you of all – of the three of us, right, had the clearest idea of, like, this is the path sort of forward. Right. He was right? Tank Man. Yes. Oh, oh, I got a funny story, if you uh, <laughs> if you let me tell it, um, uh, Leo, about how our paths actually first crossed, and we all knew that you were going to be a rock star, right? Like – you know the story too, right? And so anyway, so I got there and then one of the, and so this is like something that I tell students too when they're applying to graduate school, that your major advisor is obviously super important, right? And influencing what you do. But a lot of times that, you know, students who are kind of going into this that don't, you know, necessarily realize is that the people that are there besides your major advisor, right? Your the other faculty members who are on your committee, and then really importantly, right, the other graduate students and postdocs and the other, right, if you're at a museum, the collection staff, those people are oftentimes, you know, uh, as important, right, in different the, ways. That the grads, the grad students you're in college or grad school with are probably the single most important. Like, right. I mean, it's hard you'll to run quantify. everything by them first. Right. I mean, yes. they're right. Right. It's like the you know, your major advisor guides you in certain ways. But, yeah, they're the ones who basically tell you the basics like, oh, do that. Don't do that. Use this software. You know, don't make this mistake. You know, it's the you know, it's the, and, they, you, and you bounce things off them, too. Yeah, exactly. Because you spend more time with them, no matter how, um, you know, hands on your advisor is, your advisor has lots of responsibilities, right? That means that, yeah, before you get to that stage, right? Exactly. That's a good, you know, that's a good way to put it, right? You, the other graduate students are your sounding boards, right? You kind of like grow from learning how they think 
about their, you know, like their research problems and also how they approach when you, you know, approach your problems when you ask them about how to deal with things. And one of the like really influential graduate students there who's like the senior grad student when I got there at the time uh, is a guy who we're still like, you know, I'm still friends with. We see him uh, at the meetings all the time is Mike Adati, right? And then in the whole, it's a small world and all roads lead to Kansas and ichthyology, at least from my <laughs> view of ichthyology, right? Mike Adati then went on and he became a professor at Regis University, which is where Matt got his undergraduate degree and he did his undergraduate research with with my friend Mike, who was so crazy. You know, um, what was that? So crazy. Yeah, I know exactly, right? So it's got all these, you know, uh Dick Rosenblatt was born in Kansas. Dum dum dum. <laughs> oh, where in Kansas? I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. Oh wow, that's cool. I didn't yeah, I didn't realize that. Except for he went to college oh, UCLA. Okay. And so then he was like, oh, yay, West Coast. I'm going to stay out here. Well, all so, of us work on ocean fish, so it is a little weird that we all went to college or spent a lot yeah. of time in Kansas. Right. And then your case are going to be there foreseeably, oh, right, for the rest of oh, your I career. Died. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so then I, uh, I was there and I ended up working on a bunch of things, but for my PhD, I worked on damselfishes, right? So as Leo was saying, even though I was in the middle of Kansas through the, you know, the beauty of the museum and collection system, right? I was working on an entirely, um, uh, marine or, you know, they have a few brackish water and freshwater representatives, but they're mostly a marine, um, group. And then, oh, right. And so... Then um, I got my PhD and I got my first postdoc in New York, which is actually where I was born, uh, New York City, where I was uh, where I was born and grew up. And so I actually went back there for my sort of first job out of uh, graduate school at the American Museum of Natural History, which is where I met Leo, because my postdoc advisor is a woman named Melanie Stiasny, who's a, who's still a curator there at the uh, the American Museum, and Leo was um, her uh, was her graduate student. But the funny story I was going to tell is that wasn't the first time we had crossed paths because I remember several years earlier when Leo had finished up his master's and was applying to graduate school for his PhD program, Ed comes in, rushes in, and tells us, oh, there's this awesome student who is applying to all these different programs. KU was one of them um, uh, uh, to work with Ed. And he was like, his name is Leo Smith. He's basically the greatest thing since sliced bread. I can't remember exactly the, the, the terminology, but he was like, oh my God, it would be so great if we got him again, you know, just, you know, really talked you up. And then was like uh, to me and Nancy, I think was there at the time. And I can't remember who else. It's like, okay. It's like, so he's going to call and he's going to talk to you guys. It's like, you know, like make sure you make a good impression. And that was actually the very first time that I met you was on the phone when we were trying to sell you on coming to Kansas. So I still remember. Do you remember that? Do. Okay. So, but then, you know, for real, the, you Except know, for the, any of the nice part. <laughs> well, yes, because that was obviously all off the phone. And, and clearly, right, uh, we, we let Ed down because you were like, nope, well, I'm going to go to the American Museum. That's so, not um, exactly fair because my, my <laughs> girlfriend, fiance, whatever she was at the time, now wife, got assigned to Teach for America to New York. So I had a few that I was kind of deciding between, and that basically sealed the deal. So Oh, I was just kidding. I mean... Like, I certainly don't blame you. It's like, oh, hey, I mean, I love, you know, KU and Lawrence and all that. But it's like, oh, I get to go to the American Museum and, like, live in New York. I Not, not a lot of people. I, who, I was you know. deathly afraid of living in New York. Oh, I really? A, I grew up in a little town. So, like, New York was, was if any, upsetting to me, you know. I'm stressed. Mm, okay. I'm easily stressed, you. I, have a I see. Weak constitution. Yeah. <laughs> 
So you didn't know you wanted to, I'm confused. So you didn't know you wanted to be a fish guy. When you were like you when you were like a third or fourth year at Cornell. Oh, no, no. Like I, I look back and I just think, you know, it's one of those things where, oh, I totally lucked out. Right. Like there's like all these things that had to come together. Right. Where I was just like, oh, I'll just apply to these places and talk to these people. And then Ed like took a flyer on me and was like that was it was like it's like just those weird things. Right. Because Ed hadn't had a lot of students before then, but then suddenly decided it's like, oh, hey, it's cool having, you know, because he got Mike Adati and a couple other students were around. And he was like, oh, this is kind of cool having, you know, like more students. And so he was taking more students on at the time. And he was like, oh, he took a flyer on me. And yeah, like once, right, it's just those, like all those things kind of came together. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really, you know, like, you know, this is really like, you know, what I want to do. But in a lot of ways, right, it's like I didn't kind of didn't know that at the time. So that's why I say like I was really lucky in the way that everything kind of worked out. And then I somehow actually turned it into a career because I definitely on the other side, it's one of those, you know, as you, you know, as you get older, you look back and go, oh, God, if I'd only known. Right. Like, you know, the wisdom of age. Right. It's like, oh, I'm so young and stupid back then kind of thing. Right. Like I was just like an idiot back then. And it's like I don't even understand how I made it like this far being as like clueless as I was back when I was an undergrad. Or in graduate school. So Ed when was you like, say the he lead took fan. a flyer. Is that like a literal flyer? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what do you mean no. he took a flyer on you? No, no, no. Like- I meant like I applied with, <laughs> like I applied with Ed, right? Okay. Because it's like, oh, it's like, hey, I knew who he was, right? Like I took the theology class, right? I mean, and um, all that stuff, right? And but I just meant take a flyer, as in like I was not that great, you know, like I wasn't, you know, like that great a candidate. So right? he like, like took I a had- chance on you. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant. Like, yeah, exactly. He, like, took a chance on me, right? Because on I'm, like, picturing a literal Kevin Tang flyer that was, like... Oh, yeah, I was handing them out. I love the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was just like, yeah, I want that one. Yeah. I want Kevin. No, no, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the poor choice of words. I should have said, yeah, he took a chance on me, right? Because on paper, I was... Yeah, right. There was nothing that stood out, right? In any. So, who suggested uh, that you way. apply to Ed? Because, like, in my case, it was Mike, which is a pretty direct connection. But for you, like... Right. How did you end up applying just like oh i was just like looking at places to and it's like you know it's like and i knew what he did and then that's how i ended up there but no seriously when i say it's like oh yeah looking back on it now i have no idea how i ended up like actually becoming an ichthyologist because i was you know you think back and it's like oh god it's like what what, you know what what was i doing you know um uh, kind of stuff you know i had like a little bit of undergraduate research but i hadn't really done any systematics related stuff and so it was just yeah no like ed just took a chance on me and luckily for me like thank god it you know it's like yeah it, it actually somehow panned out so the thing you have to realize, because you're like a baby compared to us, Matt, is that like when we applied to grad school, there were no web pages of faculty members. Oh yeah, you would. Yes. You, so you would go to like the library or request like yes. these these things that were like that like had like they were kind of like a front page of a web page. It would have like one picture of the person per page, or mm-hmm. if it was a smaller university mm-hmm. or a bigger university, it would maybe have two or three people, and you would just sort of look at them, so you'd be like, so that's what a Hans Peter Schultz looks like, huh? And then you'd go to the next <laughs> page, yeah. and you would have to like request these like way in advance, and there was no internet. I mean, there was like yep. a, a hint of an internet, but there was no, yeah, no like web pages for labs or anything. So like did you that. like call Ed on point. the phone ahead of time, Kevin, or did you just apply? Um, I... I emailed everyone's okay so yeah that's a great point I hadn't even thought about that yeah because I graduated in 95 and that was literally right when the internet as we know it was like becoming a thing right like back then it was (laughs) it had hatched it was useless yeah yeah exactly it's just like it came out of my alien face hugger egg it's just like 
Yeah, it's crazy, like, thinking back on it now, right? But it's like, you know, when you tell students today what it was like, it's like, yeah, the Internet literally had just became a thing. It just became sort of widespread. Email obviously existed, but at that point, right, Google didn't exist. And I don't know if you remember this. It's like, this is how search engines went. You're like, oh, I'm going to plug in and I'm going to search for whatever, University of Kansas. And the first 10 pages would just be random pages on the internet where both the word university and Kansas appeared somewhere in there. And maybe if you were really lucky and persistent on page 16, there was the official webpage of the University of Kansas. And it was literally one page, like one screen. It was weirder than that for me because I used to like switch from like search engine to search engine like like it was faster yeah. rather than scrolling Alta through the Vista pages and be like, let me try yeah. Lycos let me try Alta Vista yeah, yeah. let me try yeah, yeah, yeah. Yahoo <laughs> yes and they were all useless, right? Because that's the whole reason why Google like rules the world today because early search engines like Yahoo and stuff like that, right? Literally didn't work in any meaningful way. Like the best way to get to a place is to read about it in a newspaper or a magazine or see a story on the on TV and then physically write down the address and then go type it into a computer. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. That's a, that's a great point, right? Like the whole recruitment process is totally different now because of that. So did you write the whole thing out as an email, like a big long thing, I'm Kevin and do all this? Yeah, wrote an email, be like, hey, this is who I am. I'm interested in applying. Are you, do you have, you know, all that stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So I wrote like a really brief email that was like, hi, my name is Leo. I want to go to grad school studying like systematic theology of spiny rayed fishes. I'm going to send you a letter in the mail. And <laughs> and then I'll wait. Huh. Uh, and then about seven to 10 days later, I'll send you another email. <laughs> and then I did that. <laughs> I can't remember now. God, because it's like 20. Geez, oh, we're old. Uh, it's yeah. I don't remember. I, I remember the, the email part. <laughs> Oh, do you? Yeah. Those are lost. Those are lost to history now. I remember I I was like interested in law school or graduate school. And at some point along the way, I was like trying to decide between the two. And like Ed called me on the phone. You need to make a decision. And I was like, yeah, I'll go to grad school. And he was like, cool. And then he hung up. And that was it. I was (laughs) like, I guess I'm going to grad school. (laughs) And your life was forever changed. Yeah. I only talked to three professors on the phone. Like, the, which were probably the three I liked the most. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just avoided all. I was shy. Like calling on the phone didn't appeal. Still doesn't appeal. I don't like want. I don't like to yeah. when students want to like Skype with me or something like that. It makes me uncomfortable. Oh yeah, that's just weird. Well, and I think I told you guys the first time I met Ed, he like he had this <clears throat> Mazda Miata, and when I first <laughs> got there, he took me in it and he had the convertible part like down, and he drove me around the KU did. campus. And then as we like stopped, he like asked me if I was a Beatles guy oh, or right. a Rolling Stones guy, and I said I was a Beatles guy, and he just looked at me and he was like, wrong answer. And then I was just like, crap. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. It all worked out in the end. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Like, I maintain my Beatles answer. Yeah, so. for sure. Certainly keeps the harmony in your house as well, if you say that answer. Well, he liked the Rolling Stones because he thought they were more like in your face, kind of like Smash Mouth. But I still think They're the Beatles are far more creative. <laughs> Remember who to send the hate mail to for all the, <laughs> <laughs> all the fans out there. I Matt think there's Davis. no question the Beatles are more creative than the Rolling Stones. Like the Rolling Stones are a great rock band, but there's no. I'm not question. arguing with you. Remember, I don't listen to music. I don't have an oh, no, opinion I, on this. Yeah, I, I just think that like it's you know, I think it's hard to argue that the Beatles are not more creative than the Rolling Stones. 
Well, especially if you factor in the last 30 years of Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With no deviation. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, I remember interviewing at various places, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's stressful, you know. Mm-hmm. The thing I think that, like, maybe I didn't appreciate at the time was, like, the professors are nervous about the whole thing, too, now as, you're, as you are one. Or at least I'm nervous. I don't know if everybody is, mm-hmm. but. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a commitment on both right. sides. Yeah. So, And now if yeah. I asked a student if they were a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan, they would be like, who? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what? I asked somebody the other day who, like, if they could name the four Beatles and they, like, were like John Legend. Um, <laughs> they, they have no idea. Kids today. Yeah. They can <laughs> no, name Ringo just... and Paul basically because they're alive still. And that's it if you're lucky and they certainly can't know name any rolling stones they don't know any rolling stones even though most of them there are more of them alive than there are beatles i guess they're yeah, not as culturally relevant they they can't name any of them they can't even name kurt cobain yeah they the, well, their knowledge of 80s and early 90s musicians is weak yeah let's be honest at this point their knowledge of the aughts are going to be weak real soon right because what, what join the club matt it's like this is what it feels like getting old when literally you have no, nothing in common with them and you're like, I can't maintain a conversation anymore because we don't have anything to talk about. There will always be video games. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I guess, depending, right? Because then it'd be like, oh, but the, the real classics were, you know, Super Mario World on, uh, you know, the SNES or and they'll be like, the what, what now? And then they're you'll kinda, get angry. A lot of the ones I talk to are just like Black Ops. And I'll be like Super Mario. <laughs> and they're just like Black Ops. And you're just like, yeah. games existed before Black Ops. <laughs> right. What's the one right. everyone plays right now? Fortnite? Fortnite. Fortnite, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I like Fortnite. I play that. Oh, yeah. When are we going to play? Mm, I don't know. We could play that whenever. So, yeah. So, like, all right. So, Matt gave us a hint into the other question I kind of had on this idea. It's like, like. So do you think you would have been a lawyer if this hadn't panned out, or is that what you'd still want to do, Matt? I don't know. I think there was, like, an aspect of argumentativeness I really liked. (laughs) And, like, I, you know, I was attracted to the lawyerness in a sense of, like, ecological law and, yeah, I know, environmental law, a few (laughs) different things. And, like, part of it is just because, you know, I don't mind arguing. I kind of like certain aspects of all that, and... I'm, you know, I don't know. I may have been happy as a lawyer, but I do like the creative freedom of academia and like doing your own research. Um, and in the end, that was kind of what attracted me, other than Ed just calling me and being like, "Will you make a decision already?" So um, you could make an argument. Oh, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was just saying you could make an argument, right? There are definitely aspects of like the legal profession that like overlap with the kinds of things we do right because we're thinking oh, yeah, of like sure. oh law and order or whatever but it's like oh the research right like looking into you know um you know finding information and applying relevant you know pieces of information right there's definitely research aspects of it that are very similar oh well, yeah things totally. often, when i often talk to students is like there's also some aspect because what we actually have chosen among ichthyology is like a historical science so we don't do mm-hmm. experiments for the most part and yeah, see what happens. True. We are sort of piecing together evidence, right? And so there is some aspect mm-hmm. of this, whether you want to be an FBI agent or a lawyer, yeah. that you're yeah, doing trying their to, background research. Yeah, you're you're right. pulling together a bunch of things, like, and to some degree, we have to sort of, you know, instead of a jury or whatever, like, or a judge, you know, if you're environmental law, there's probably not too many juries, but like, you know, you're trying to convince your peers in our case of some 
you know, you're putting a bunch of evidence together for something that we can't witness and an experiment we can't really run because it's already been run to try. Yeah, and it's like you're building a case for your argument, yeah. right? Like that's, that's kind of what papers are. Um, and the reality Which are like, is like legal briefs, right? Yeah. I went, I went, you know, I went kind of far down the rabbit hole. Like I took the LSAT, I applied to law schools, I was accepted to very, like more than two law schools. Like I had a decision to make at the time, and in the end, I was kind of like, you know, I really the graduate school lifestyle or the academic research appealed to me in a different kind of way. Um, and I haven't regretted going with that decision, but there was a period of time there, like when I was a senior in college where I was like, what should I do? Should I go law school? Should I go grad school? Um, and you know, it was a little bit of a tricky decision at the time. Yeah. I mean, like for me, I don't know what I would have done, but like HJ Walker, Scripps, who's the collection or now collection manager emeritus or something at Scripps, like was the single like sort of linchpin. It sounds like Kevin's may have been Ed to some degree that you're, you know, like how you actually yeah. solidify yourself. Whereas like Matt, it was Mike Gadotti. It sounds like, like the, yeah. I do think that a Although big chunk of this. He was rolling his eyes at my, my law school ideas. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but like, it's you're weird like, how like school, one person, uh... <laughs> but like, it's weird how one person can sort of influence this. I mean, I always think about that. Like, you know what I mean? Like you think you go to all these classes in college, it's supposed to be so obvious. You're supposed to figure all this stuff out. But right. like, one person doing something slightly different and I might be a oceanographer or something, you know, like right. I was definitely on a fish path. Like I never had this like lizard paleo. I didn't know the name of a single dinosaur. Right. I, I probably can only name 10 dinosaurs now and I'll get confused over what's a dinosaur. Like mine was definitely right, But you're fish. one of the few people who's like dinosaurs. Yeah, I could take it or leave it. Right. You're like in that tiny fraction of the population who are like unimpressed by dinosaurs. Which it's is not that. It's just like, it's just like, right. It's sacrilege, but fine. Well, <laughs> well we won't hold it against you. Much. I just don't even know them. I don't even know when people get into the fights over. That's not a dinosaur. That's something else. I mean, obviously, I know like mosasaurs and stuff, but like, right. you start telling me a pteranodon or whatever is not a dinosaur, and I'm just like, I'm totally oh, screwed come on. here. What are you talking about? It's a systematist. You should be no, like, know, oh yeah, I no, I get know. it. It's like I don't even. Surely care. you must know an ichthyosaur is not a dinosaur. No, I didn't know that. Uh, oh god. Wait, wait, an right now. Wait, is an ichthyosaur the fish like the, like the dolphin like things? Okay, yeah, so the little dolphin-like dolphins. things, yeah. Okay, so plesiosaur, that plesiosaur is a, di- a dinosaur. The Loch Ness no. Monster? No, they're not. They're not, no. yeah. They're not. What the hell is a dinosaur? <laughs> dinosaurs are dinosaurs. They're just on land? Like a T-Rex, a stegosaur, yeah, and I know a patasaur. So how about you, Kevin? Do you, know what, do you have any idea what you would have done if you hadn't done this? No, I mean, I've thought about it, right? It's like, so, I hadn't thought about the, the law thing, but there's definitely aspects of that, and... You know, Matt touched on this too, right? When we talk about the benefits of the job, we talk about the academic freedom and, you know, just sort of the the relax or the the lack of, you know, constant supervision and it's the less sort of less structured nature. But again, just from where you are when you're going into this, that was definitely not on my radar at all, right? That idea that. Th- th- those would be, you know, some of the benefits of the job. It was just the, oh, I would get to do this thing where I study organisms. I don't think I would have ended up in a job like at an aquarium or a zoo because my interest wasn't necessarily in that way. I mean, I think in some ways I'm influenced because growing up, we did have fish tanks. My dad had like a big tank where he got like some angelfish, like freshwater angelfish to breed. And I remember growing up with those and my dad still keeps fish and stuff like that. But that wasn't mm, the thing that 
you know, was most interesting to me. It was the categorizing things, right? And, um, you know, figuring out all the diversity that's out there and then figuring out where they go and what their sort of place is in nature. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because I, I hadn't thought about this at all until, um, you know, Matt, well, you guys were talking about sort of the legal aspects. There's definitely parts of the law, you know, the, the law profession, right, that overlaps with us. But having gotten into this field and this specific part of this field, right, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, like going into law wouldn't be that great because we all spend time with the code, right, the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, which is the most legalistic part of our field, right, which is, you know, determines how, you know, the application of names. And we all work on the, uh, that stuff a little bit, but having worked on it a little bit, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is not this is not for me, <laughs> right? Like torture. I do in, yeah, exactly. It's like I do enough, like, and we're probably better than average, but that's not saying much, right? Because there are definitely people in our field who are really good at it, right? Who are really cut out for it. And I think for them, an alternate profession could have been to become a lawyer, right? But for us, it's sort of like, oh, I see that and I can do enough of the nomenclature stuff to get by with what I need to do, but I probably couldn't do that as a career. Yeah, I don't like that there's like so much structure, right? Like there's like, I do think that as a lawyer, a lot of the benefits, and I agree with you that like everything that I would declare as a benefit of my job was not something that I would have said was why I wanted this job. Like all the things I love about the job, the freedom, the like making your own schedule. Like I'm very streaky, like I won't work and then I'll work really hard. And like, it's not that I don't want to work. It's just that like by my nature, all of a sudden, like four days goes by and nothing happens. And I think it's part of being creative or stressed or whatever, you know, whatever the, the trials and tribulations of any job, not just, you know, not this one, but I think that would work less well as a lawyer. Although I think you'd have more of that than say most jobs, right? If you, like if we were computer engineers or something where you're creative, you know, writing code or something, it's hard to be streaky there, you know, at least based on Or just any, or just, well, I, I think just any job where there's an expectation of like output or, you know, whatever you want to call work on a step. I guess the best way to describe it, right, is like in so many ways, again, in hindsight, oh, this is great for me and I wouldn't want to do anything else. But I didn't know that going in, right? Like knowing this now, right? It's like, oh, I don't do well with structure, right? I don't do well with supervision and having somebody like a manager who's like, oh, I need those TPS reports on my desk, you know, by tomorrow, like, right? It's like, I know that now in hindsight, right? And it's like, oh, well, thank God I ended up in this job because there is no way or I would be super, super miserable if I was in that kind of regimented sort of thing, right? It's like on a spectrum, right? We're much more toward the... I mean, obviously we're not, there's jobs that are way more sort of like unstructured and free than ours, but we're definitely further away from like the other extreme where where you're like in the military or something like that, right? right? It's like, that's what I always think about. It's like some kind of standard office job where you have like a manager and a supervisor and you're, you know, constantly in meetings and you have to write, you know, like I would not have done well or thrived in that thing. But going into this, that wasn't part of the decision-making process right. and that's part of the whole wow I really lucked out there yeah I mean the way I always describe it to students is that you know we're measured on a once a year you know we turn in a bunch of stuff we're assessed just like everybody else but it's once a year like right. the time for the window of observation right like we're not a you know even like a you know whatever a company in the stock market has a quarterly report they have right. to present right and even that is way more incremental than ours right like we are right you know, and like, and so this is like when it gets funny because everybody, you know, grew up watching TV shows where, 
you can't be more than a minute late to work and you're measured on like you get there at eight o'clock and you leave at five o'clock right. and not a minute earlier. Right. And like there are a whole bunch of academics and students that like still pride themselves on who gets there first and who leaves last and all that stuff. And it just doesn't like and I always just try and like it's like the first thing I want to kick out of a student is just like I don't care at all when you're here. Right. Like I'm measuring right. like this job. If you want to like go into academia and this job with me is like, you know, a six month or one year assessment it's not anything more close like don't worry about that if you're more successful if whatever you're doing you're better off writing this part in the library or at home or whatever like if it's not a part of the job that it has to be done here like go do it where you're successful right because you know and that's a weird kind of job right right well, in a, in a weird kind of uh, analog it's kind of it's similar to when you're talking to students about class it doesn't matter how much time you spend studying right it's the quality of the studying and whether or not the end yeah. result uh you know assimilating and then uh incorporating that knowledge that's the thing and so right the fact that we don't have to punch a clock is part of that you figure out what works best for you in terms of being productive and doing the work that you need to get done in those rare instances you know in those more infrequent uh, evaluation periods yeah no i mean and that's what I come to really like about the job like as much as any of the stuff, but it is not at all what I thought I would, you know, what I thought would yeah. be more important. You know, I mean, right. it's like anything, like you don't worry about what your commute is when you're thinking of your, your dream job, but the reality is a commute right. impacts your life tremendously. And it's that same yeah. kind of stuff. It's that flexibility in life that turns out is pretty nice as an adult. And it's tricky, too, because uh, I'm sure you guys have these conversations all the time as well. When you're talking to students and trying to explain to them, it's like, oh, well, what are your options? Do you want to go to graduate school? It's so hard because we're we're like the the path to going through graduate school is in many ways different for, you know, different people as they go through it. And it's often very hard to tell a student, oh, I think you should do this or not, because you don't know. There are these skills that oftentimes you don't realize that you need and or have until you're actually in graduate school or you're, you know, you know, uh, you've graduated and you're in a postdoc or you're at your first job and you have to do something that you haven't really had a chance to do before. And you, that's when you figure out, oh, uh, you know, I'm OK at this and I enjoy it or not. And a lot of times, right, if that comes late enough in the cycle, maybe that's not information that you have or that's not that's information that would have been better to have early on, right? And then that's, that's what's so hard about it. And when you tell students, it's like, well, based on the limited information you have, you have a chance of success in graduate school. But there are so many ways for that to not pan out for for reasons that are essentially like unknown to you when you make that call, when you commit to it. You don't know, right? And I think back on it, right? I was so clueless and so ignorant, right? I'm like, I still don't understand. It's like, boy, I like hit the lottery that I ended up, excuse me, um, that I ended up doing this because it actually fits my like whatever strengths and minimizes my weaknesses in ways that I didn't plan for. Right, and I, and I look at it and I go, you know, it's like, you know, my dad had a PhD. Both my parents went to college. You know, mm -hmm. yours were as educated or more, I guess. Like. Yeah. It's like a very, I don't know how anyone even knows this is a job. Yeah. <laughs> like Matt talked about struggling with that part, but it's like, I yeah. don't know how anyone I had no could idea. ever contemplate that, right? You know, and yeah, I didn't know there was any other job, right? I grew up in a town right. where like, 
a huge number, you know, in Los Alamos, I don't know, some huge percentage of adults have PhDs. Like, and the one thing you learn is that any, like, complete tool can get a, a PhD, right? Like the guy that can't even <laughs> figure out how to mow the lawn. For me, it was like very obscure, right? Like it was like the concept of a biologist was this like obscure thing. Like you just go off to be a biologist. Like you're going off to be at NASA or something. Like, right. like it's just very it was, amorphous, right? It's a thing yeah. that has a name, but you have no idea what the day to day activity is. Right. Like I had no concept of graduate school when I was an undergrad. Not until I was, you know, towards the end of undergrad did I have any concept of what graduate school even right. was. And even when I got yeah. to graduate school, it wasn't exactly what I imagined graduate school would be. So it was just this like completely opaque concept. Right. Yeah, my because bro- my brother, my older brother, had a, got a PhD, and he was in grad school when I was an undergrad. But his was very different because he got his degree in Boulder, but spent most of his time in New Mexico. Um, because and so he would like go back for classes, or they would send him videotapes of classes that he was taking and stuff. Because his research was being funded to some degree by the Los Alamos National Lab, and so that was so different than how my dad described it. And my dad's and my mom talking about when my dad was in grad school was very much mm-hmm. more like what my life was like in grad school, right? Like you do spend all this time with those students that become your, you know, your peers from grad school are probably one of the tightest connections you'll have. I mean, it is absolutely yeah. not boot camp, but like to some degree, it's like that same oh, yeah. kind of thing. It's not that. Yeah. You're like cohorted people. Right. We're not like, we're not battling to the death together here. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, well, I'm probably asking yeah. so many of your cohort has completely different interests than you. They're not, they're not like direct competition or anything. Like, you know, there may be people working on beetles or like various random things. So, right. um, Yeah. But yeah, some of those people, right? I don't, I don't talk to that frequently. But we could pick up like it was just yesterday. If you know, if I start like texting with them, or you know, I meet, you know, like I, you know, they're at the meetings, and it's yeah, it's like, you know, they're your friends that you went through this very formative period of your life with, and so as a result, you know, they're very influential on the person, not just the scientist, but the person you ended up becoming. Right. I mean, you would do anything for them. Like, if, you know, if, if all of a sudden they needed something, you'd be like, sure, no problem. Like, it's like, it's not even, it's like a no brainer unless they were mm-hmm. those, those one or two horrible ones, you know? Yeah, yeah sure. You're not going <laughs> to like everyone, but yeah, exactly. They're <laughs> friends, the ones that you yeah. spend all your time with. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that ends this episode of Fishmongers. Um, if you, like we said at the beginning, if you ever want to like reach out to us, you can reach Leo at, on Twitter at, at fishphylogeny, F-I-S-H-P-H-Y-L-O-G-E-N-Y. Uh, this is Matt, and you can reach Matt on Twitter at Bathy Taroas at symbol B A T H Y P T E R O I S. And then Kevin doesn't actually believe in social media or smartphones, so we were thinking That's about right. different ways. Maybe we'll end these by mocking him each time. So this time we came up with maybe you should try and reach him on AOL Instant Messenger. Right. <laughs> maybe friendster yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and again if you want to have any questions given that situation or if you have any general questions to us you can always tweet all of us at uh, underscore the fishmongers um, so that would be the other way so uh, as always we appreciate uh, you guys listening and any comments or uh, if you could go log on to iTunes and rate us or anything like that or review us good or bad um, let us know we're happy to switch topics go on certain time to topics anything like we love you know at this point since the second episode we just like any feedback really um and we appreciate yep. the feedback we've received not unless it's too negative though you know <laughs> <laughs> 
Alright, thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.